Welcome to the New Habits Podcast, where executives and MVPs from Microsoft Partners discuss the Microsoft Teams application and its use in enterprises. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the New Habits Podcast. It's Susie Dean here, and I'm joined by our permanent panel, Paul Schaeflein, Victor Velen, and Wes Hackett. Today, we'll be discussing organizational content. What is it? What should it be? And how should organizations approach the production of their content? For a long time, um, projects that were designed to bring together organizational insight, intranet projects, required a lot of development upfront. And so the development became the focus of the project. Today, with search, SharePoint pages, and components being available out of the box and ready to go, the process of getting to content production has been expedited and subsequently um, there's a renewed spotlight and interest in content and the quality of the material that these capabilities have to serve. With Project Cortex being teed up to automate the creation of metadata uh, based on the keywords within content, there's even more emphasis on getting uh, content in a place where the insights the technology can provide are valuable. The State of the Sector Survey, which focuses on internal communications, surveyed thousands of communicators in October 2019 and found that only 21% of all communications professionals do no formal planning at all. So with two in 10 organizations or communications teams not even planning their material, are we potentially setting up capabilities such as Project Cortex uh, for, for fail. So to open up uh, the conversation today, um, I wanted to kick off by asking our panel a little bit about content planning and control um, from uh, their own experiences. Victor and Wes, uh, I know you have both consulted on hundreds of projects um, like this. So anecdotally, um, what have been some of the approaches that you've seen to content planning that have worked really, really well. Uh, and then perhaps let's talk through some that haven't been too brilliant and why that's been. I can start with uh, one thing I always start in my discussions when it comes to content planning, information architecture or anything around this is sort of, do you want it to be easy to save or easy to find? Because those are sort of the two extremes and it's super hard to, to combine them into both. You mentioned probably cortex, cortex a couple of times and that's hopefully going to make this kind of easier and, or make these kind of two ends going closer together. But coming from document management and taking a look at that in those old school document management systems, they essentially, I've been seeing sort of implementations where you have to fill in like 150 different kind of fields before you actually can save a file into the document management system. And yeah, it takes like ages to do that, but it's super easy to find and it's categorized and then it's all the metadata and stuff in there. But I've also seen the completely opposite where you don't do anything and just hope that the search engine will magically find this kind of stuff for you. And I don't think any, any one of them are good. I would like to see something in between. Thank, thankfully, so with, with all these new services and a better search and a more intelligent search and more content extraction or metadata extraction, these kind of the processes will be easier. But I think it's still, you need to start with those kind of things and thinking about how will I save my document? Will I just click file save and it will end up in my documents it's my document one and hopefully the, the enterprise search will pick it up or do I 
create the custom UI for this and put in all this metadata and have taxonomies and, and all that kind of work. And then it, it's going to end up with end users not saving the files in there and keeping it on the local drives instead, and you will never find it. So I think those are the two extremes, and that's I usually start a discussion there because I think that brings up a lot of those kind of interesting aspects, and, and hopefully you end up or the product end up somewhere in between there. Thoughts on those kind of on that way of doing it. So I, I start from a diff, start from a different island um, in, in the conversations, but I think it's probably um, more to do with the initial initial sort of engagement with the business part of the project. For, for me, the the initial conversations um, begin for the most part with a marketing or communications team. And one thing I've seen um, over the years is is a big variance in the actual marketing and communications content plan. What the team that's responsible for communicating with the business actually plan to do. There's a lot of there's a lot of communication teams that I've worked with that are very well set up to be reactionary. So you know the current climate of work that we find ourselves in you know with the remote working being the sort of day-to-day norm now there's a there's many many comms teams that would have been well well sort of serviced by both an approach to that crisis management by um channels that they can reach the rest of the business by and an understanding of technology that can service those those needs um but it's rare that you find a, a sort of marketing and communications set of stakeholders that that are also as well versed in planning ahead content that they need to support the business with. It's 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 a very interesting conversation when you do work with them. We we um, we had a, a very very capable team at one particular UK based customer uh, a few years ago, and they had a, a major milestone event in their organisation's calendar that was uh, you know a very very important milestone for that business, and. All of their communications were planned a good 18 months up to that point. And it was very easy to understand how they were going to communicate messages, where those messages were going to be, which channels they were going to use, and the impact of receiving that message that the employee and the talent within the organization, you know, that that kind of knock-on effect, if you like, of what what was going to be done with the information that you had afterwards. And um, what I what I would be very excited to see is the platform sort of evolving content planning and putting more tools in place. You know, we have we have um, channels and Yammer teams, and we have process automations in approvals and putting publishing portals live is a you know well versed playbook. But actually, uh, the ecosystem uh, and consulting ecosystem. it's all about collaboration and onboarding and content planning and and change management in collaboration. And and at the moment, I can see a void where we've got this uh, approach that's missing for the the planned comms that, you know, how do we use Office 365 and Microsoft 365 technologies in a planned intranet communications mechanism that supports all of this other change management. There's a, you know, the, for me, there's a there's a really um, big conversation when you start opening that up at, at many of the organisations that we've worked with. 
I think there's a difference as well between content communications um, should be producing and content that should come from the wider business. For, for me, communications should be talking about the big strategic in- initiative, uh, operational communications should be something that they facilitate between business areas. But when it comes to um, content uh, that's more to do with ways of working, um, I do think that should uh, be managed from within the business. And I think where we've seen organizations do really well is that communications team may well own, for example, the information architecture of the uh, intranet, but they only own a portion of the content creation. Um, you know, less good projects are where the communications team have tried to write content for all business areas. And of course, without being subject matter experts in those spaces, the output has not been as useful or, or valuable to the business um, as it might otherwise be. So um, I, I guess moving the conversation on uh, a little bit, when uh, lots of organizations uh, publicly and internally talk about authenticity and the importance of an authentic uh, voice, um, are the tone of voice guidelines that organizations publish today uh, enabling or preventing that democratic content production? Um, you know, is the whole notion of um, tone of voice guidelines at odds with people being able to produce valuable content or do they enable that activity? That's an interesting aspect to it, uh, thinking of that. So tone of voice uh, sort of depends on what kind of content we're talking about, right? Uh, If it's communications content or if it's reporting or research or whatnot. So it's, yeah. Uh, I think uh, uh, depending on your organization as well, if you're global and whatnot, it's very different on how you sort of articulate your way in written form in different kind of way parts of the world. But also one of the things I saw from the uh, Microsoft announced from the tech community today, today, so that adding a new feature to Word where they can rewrite the phrase for you. So probably changing that tone of voice as well. But also there's a lot of AI going into tone of voice. So for instance, I know Microsoft is using, and, and we, uh, I think we are using that as well, sort of a scanner that actually looks through you sort of all our uh, documents that we send out for, for um, uh, CVs or some uh, things like that. Uh, when we want to recruit people, so we do look for unconscious bias kind of things in there, which are built in. So this is a very deep discussion where you can go down to the sort of the, the tone of voice. But when it comes to the communications department, I'm pretty sure they have those kind of guidelines. And, and if you're communicating from the corporate, company out to all employees you definitely need those kind of things in there but i find it can be a bit of an inhibitor i mean when we were chatting before with susan and simon they were mentioning how you get people uh, communities that may be they, they speak in a certain way and and people are shy and so if i want to then expose that content to a wider range and now oh this is great content but here let me rewrite it for you it seems to be sending the wrong message to folks that you might want to contribute content because now they feel you know, belittled or, or, or shamed, or perhaps I'm not as smart as somebody else because I don't use the same, you know, $10 words as other people do. So I think it's, it's a fine line for sure that uh, between fostering content and publishing it. But I think uh, Victor is talking about um, internal 
communications as the function and he referred to content that would go external to the business. Um, Paul, I think that the point you're making is about everyday people publishing their their know-how and their content, which uh, I tend to agree if tone of voice guidelines are uh, applied to those or an organization expects everyday people in the business who aren't in communications and marketing to follow those, it could be a big turnoff. I can absolutely agree there. So I can give from myself as an example. I'm in Sweden, right? You're, you're from the US and UK. So we have the language barrier. That's one thing. But also the, the way we express ourselves here in Sweden is more uh, within quotes, raw or blunt sometimes, uh, which absolutely does not resonate in certain scenarios. So I need to think about how sometimes when I'm communicating through teams or whatever, and I'm writing stuff or writing a document or some point of view, I need to think about those kind of things because um, I have a broader audience and, and need to cater for that and not expressing myself as I would do here in, in the Swedish context. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very... It's a very uh, sort of risk-averse um, corporate time as well. You know, when we think about all of the different um, facets of communicate, communicating out to the organization, making sure um, that the tone of voice is inclusive and um, meets all of those, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion guidelines that, um, you know, should be taken seriously in every organization. But it but it makes it makes communications, um, you know, velocity. I think it, it slows it down because, as you say, Victor, that if you if you have to um, engage a far deeper thought process in communicating because of who might read it, um, it takes you longer. Therefore, you can't do that as frequently, and you potentially sh- you know stop doing. Um, the short burst communications that that we actually used to see in Yammer quite a lot. So you know, we, five years ago when when Yammer was the only sort of IM style threaded conversation you could sensibly have in the platform, you know, Yammer would come along and say, "Yeah, you only need about a paragraph, and you're kicking off a conversation, and you're having the to and fro." Now the the sort of the kickoff to a conversation, and certainly I see it in Teams quite a lot, is very much longer because it's trying to cater for, well, if anybody else joins this conversation, have I, the author, made sure that I have positioned the conversation in a neutral fashion? Have I made sure that the original author of the content is considered? Uh, and, and, you know, it's a much more professional kind of starter for 10 when you start that conversation. Whereas when you're communicating at a very sort of localized level you're working it in your team in in quotes you know the personalities and you just dive in and you know we the four of us could have a fairly um blunt and to the point conversation and and emotionally we won't get hung up on on that bluntness because that's how we're, we're comfortable talking with one another but if we open this up to a wider wider group we suddenly will drop down you know, into a, a different behavior. And I think that's that's an interesting challenge for tone of voice because tone of voice implies that all interactions are of equal weighting and all interactions should be as considered. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of um, emphasis on on making sure every communication at every level meets that same same barometer, which 
you know, is right and wrong in in, in some people's views, and, and I think that that makes that makes any automation in that area something that should be able to be turned on and off. In my opinion, you know, I should be able to say, well, I'm having an IM with three people that I'm comfortable in being to the point. Great, I don't need any intervention. Oh, I'm in a more public forum, which is a large project team. Can I toggle some kind of capability in to say, okay, before I click the little send button in my Teams box, can it just verify that everything I'm saying meets the tone of voice requirements for the company? It's interesting that the the notion of authenticity really begs a further question, which is whose authenticity? Um, Because what you've described there, Wes, is somebody... um, almost muting themselves or checking themselves or getting checks on um, what might be their authentic voice um, to take on the what what is the authentic voice of the organization or deemed to be the, the, the corporate um, way of communicating. Um, where these are certainly challenges that communications teams face when we consider the opportunity and on our, our last podcast, we talked about the opportunity that Project Cortex presents um, us in relation to grouping uh, content on specific subject matters for people to consume when they need it. Um, it would be useful for us to to talk about um, what should the, the bigger uh, body of organisational content. Uh, look like what should it be made up of um, and and why so if we sort of carve out the internal comms piece and put that to one side what should the rest of that content look like often uh, we find that uh, particularly when central comms write it uh, content about different business areas can be very descriptive and is uh, really rather underutilized what could corporate content be made up of to make it more useful so that when we have that Project Cortex capability running alongside it, there are real uh, business advantages to be had? Well, I think, it's, I think it, again, we mentioned it in, in previous shows that the, the campus of content is, in most organisations, a looking over the shoulder moment. It is the history of the organisation and there's a, um, I think there's a very real present danger that everybody becomes so preoccupied with retaining 20 years worth of data, 20 years worth of conversations, all the emails and the tacit knowledge that that, that just amplifies the kind of historic view. And, you know, maybe, maybe you know, we, we get some organizations that almost get to the point where they're being a little Orwellian about it, where they're rewriting history to suit the today narrative and that they, 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 can't, they can't be comfortable in decisions and approaches and processes that got them, uh, you know, to a completed project. Um, whereas, you know, some industries, engineering, construction, you know, they're, they're looking over the shoulder to, to understand cost of ownership over time and, you know, information systems kind of ownership. And, and that means that the content is a very different type of content. But if you're a consulting style of organization and you're doing professional services, you know, I think historic content can be quite risky to be the focus because it is, 
you're, by very nature, as you gain experience in that professional services arena and the, the market changes, the capabilities you're working with change, you know, things that the, the four of us might have known about SharePoint 2007, you know, how much of that is truly relevant in today's, today's market? Content types. Yeah, everything's about to come swinging around as a new as a new idea. You're right. Yeah, content types, metadata, they've all been there since 2010, 10 years ago. But I think you make an interesting point, which is being retrospective can be good, but isn't always good if you start um, using it as a reference point in, in quite an unquestioning way. Um, without uh, considering what what could be better in the future, I mean certainly um, one of the uh, concerns I had uh, listening back to the previous podcast um, was the uh, notion that uh, all content is important and valuable uh, and 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 could be considered corporate IP or corporate knowledge, which I've quoted a couple of times and um, uh, and. Uh, I guess really pushed back on um, because they wanted to see all content as knowledge and insight. But certainly our lived experience of uh, doing projects with organizations is that there is an absolute difference between superstars who understand how things are done when they're done really brilliantly um, and people that perhaps have much less experience coming into the organization um, where we would want to get those less experienced people at leveraging best from day one rather than just kind of muddling their way through and their way of doing it, joining that body of content um, that we might call the organization's best practices or, or, or ways of working. What What's the panel's view on that, um, particularly as Cortex doesn't discriminate it's going to group together um you know a a way of executing something for example uh all together it's not going to be uh, the thing that determines what's good and what's not so good that's going to require human intervention Uh, yeah right i I agree then even when we talked before that human intervention or moderation is going to be key and and to further your point right it's easy to get folks to contribute content if you ask them to do a retrospective or or how we did it type of, of, of feedback, right? Just to just to document that historical knowledge. But as we're just saying, right, that may be great, but in some areas, for example, in, in web development area, how we did it two years ago probably has zero relevance these days. So I think that's gonna just, again, mean that the, the 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 human moderators might need to make sure we're classifying things as as a retrospective at a point in time versus you know strategies for for moving forward so i think that that, that and that and i don't know if ai is going to fix that for us so i, I still think we're going to have humans involved but that, that's a great distinction i think that people have to understand Absolutely, I agree there. So on, that is also part of Project Cortex. It is not just an AI or entity extraction or binary classifiers and machine teaching. It is a big human in part of that as well in actually helping Project Cortex and what we're talking about here, sort of information architecture, first of all, and having a good solid foundation of good data, structured data that makes, makes the AI easier. But also when we think about sort of Project Cortex topic cards, uh, those are curated by moderators or knowledge managers 
leaders or your whole entire organization is more or less up to you there. But that's a super important part. And, and I don't think anyone should expect that when they install Project Cortex in June uh, or enable that in June, that all everything is just going to work and you have everything uh, connected together. That's not how it will work and people will find stuff. I'm sure people will think that. <laughs> But I, I, I almost certainly uh, agree with the, the view that um, people might like to think that Project Cortex is going to take that uh, tricky conversation um, out of the or, or off their desks. Um, but actually, I think it's uh, potentially going to force that conversation to come sooner. Um, and it does seem to be um, quite... Uh, at odds with the, the consensual uh, nature of, of business today where all voices and opinions matter. Um, for, for me, Project Cortex does the job businesses need to be their best. Um, but I think uh, workplace culture um, doesn't sit um, too comfortably with that. Um, do, do the panel think that organizations will start taking tough decisions about content and um, best practice uh, it, in, in order to perform better. I mean, remembering that we not only have Project Cortex coming very, very soon, um, but we are also looking at potentially an economic downturn. Uh, or do we think uh, that the um, workplace uh, culture where we don't really want to cast judgment will um, will uh, win out uh, and therefore the technology will fall by the wayside. Well, how are we feeling um, in this uh, battleground? Well, I think, I think the, um, the last four weeks of being boots on the ground, assisting organizations, you know, literally expediting a two-year program of work into four weeks where there's a yeah, I will say it, a mad panic to get content off of non-accessible external, you know, not servers that are not accessible off the campus into the cloud, into services that people are unfamiliar with, and to train them again in inverted commas on just enough of a capability that they can actually continue to work. I think the um the knock-on long-term effect of that is going to be quite interesting because um, we saw lots of tweets about, you know, the, the, the memes around digital transformation. What was the biggest driver? Was it cost? Was it people? Or was it COVID-19? And, you know, there's the joke, it's COVID-19. Nobody's transformed because of this. Nobody's actually transforming. But they're, they're not they're not looking they're not looking at doing things differently just because they're suddenly remote and working through teams and sharepoint and the cloud they have greater access to their digital estate than they did 4 weeks ago that's a that's a big difference and i think the scary thing about looking at these technologies that are upcoming like project cortex and um you know listening to the marketing drums bang too much about this this moment in our human history of digital transformation being driven by you know this particular moment in time is that that we forget that actually you know there's a whole bunch of economics there's a whole bunch of data that's not included in that migration you know how many um, GIS systems BIM systems construction systems that were already internet accessible continue to be used un unchanged 
the campus of a corporate data model is not only the documents in PowerPoint, Word, and Excel, and PDF. Right? It's not just that documents. People's behaviour hasn't hasn't changed. What's changed is their place of work, how many hours they can concurrently run between you know between meetings. I think it will have a very very positive effect on meeting culture because now we all have to sit on video calls and show our attention and it's being recorded and people are realizing that actually back-to-back meetings and treble bookings is just really you know a big red flag waving in their calendar and it's changing people's perception of how much time should be set in a web conference versus you know they used to be quite happy to grab a cup of coffee on the way to the next meeting and sit in a room looking at their phone doing other things while somebody was presenting now it's very much you know it's digital you're all sat there you're really obvious if you're contributing or not um so so i don't think transformations happened i think it's it's brought to the fore the cracks in the wall uh, and it's also you know highlighted to organizations how ill prepared they were for for digital first working but do you think transformation will happen as this continues? If we, you know, obviously three, four months uh, and then go back to normal is one thing. But if it persists or, or organizations decide maybe I don't need to lease that big office building in an expensive area of town, will we see the transformation happen going forward? Yeah, I think we will. I think I think there will be a big push to jump from this this baseline. That the, this this new norm, as, as as many are calling it, is is going to affect the way we approach work. It's going to certainly, um, you know, this idea of a digital twin, where we've got we've got you know physical stuff is then digitized, and and we have that more transportable and more accessible twenty four seven globally, is definitely going to impact. I think it's going to have a a positive impact on people's working patterns. You know, I know from from my own personal um, perspective, being at home has 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 improved my family time greatly. Without the ninety minute commute at either end of the day, and you know, finishing work late and going out and you know, grabbing a fairly mundane sandwich at lunch, I'm eating healthier. I'm doing more exercise. I'm working a similar number of hours, but I'm spending time with my family throughout that through that throughout that working day. So. So I think it, it it will have it will have changed people's perceptions of what work could be. I don't think there could have been a, a better set of circumstances um, in in which Project Cortex could land because you've got a combination uh, of people uh, being furloughed and possible future redundancies, which means. Um, organizations have to do more with less, i.e. they have to be more efficient. You've got um, the need for organizations to be more performant because of a global economic slowdown. So doing things better and faster and retaining clients. And you've got um, the scenario Wes has described where people are working more from home and actually it's not so much being at home versus being in the office. It's needing to do um, schoolwork with the kids for three three hour block in the day, and therefore doing three hours longer in the evening. So the the immediacy with which you would have been able to contact someone for me is the thing that's gone, rather than the um, the, the physical uh, location. 
And so I think any, um, uh, I, I think the softer uh, cultural tones of needing to be consensual, letting people do stress relieving yoga classes on the, on the roof of the office, that kind of softer workplace um, piece, I think, um, wilts on the vine pretty quickly when the very existence of businesses and, and jobs is on is on the line. And so for me, Project Cortex coming in, the context I've just described uh, is the perfect combination to get organizations in a headspace where they want to distill their best practices. They want to, they need to differentiate between content that is meaningful and um, allows the business to perform at its best and opinion-based material, which might be how, you know, Tom, Dick or Harry happen to execute a project. Um, But is it good? Is it bad? Nobody really wants to judge that. I think we're going to see more judgment because the, the moment demands it. And Cortex, of course, can facilitate that in a way that no other capability can uh, in Office 365 at the moment. So thinking a little bit uh, about the technology uh, more broadly, how should organizations be thinking about structuring their content in Office 365 now? Uh, there's obviously home sites, hub sites, com sites. What's the difference between these things and how should content producers be thinking about them? Well, certainly not subsites, never subsites. Yeah, I think this is a moving target as well. Things move around in the Office 365 suite. We do have quite a few interesting options now with uh, um, everything from from these new home sites to hub sites, etc. But I think the, the whole point, which Wes was on to, the don't go sub-sites. Everything is site collection, so that's where everything starts. And, and that's probably the biggest change as well for, I would say, the most of the clients I'm working with right now coming from that kind of uh, uh, sort of deep hierarchy to this kind of shallow or very flat hierarchy. And uh, that's going to change a lot of uh, uh, the practices around uh, SharePoint information architecture or uh, whatnot. But also another thing there is that not everything is SharePoint content. Not everything is stored in SharePoint. We have Teams, we have Jammer, we have uh, the Fluid Framework, Sway, you name it, Planner, uh, etc., uh, which make it, makes it much more complex. Uh, but let's start with the mundane kind of things when it comes to storing documents in SharePoint. And that's where sort of Project Cortex will initially um, Excel, and that's the focus of that one. But but content is so much more today, and we haven't even started digging in in that area. Thinking about sort of the, the short lived uh, content such as Snapchat, and how will that affect the futures of of uh, enterprise content? Uh, will we have those kind of just uh, short lived uh, information pieces going around, etc.? Fluid Framework is one an example where essentially it's a point in time and moving canvas all the time. But yeah, we should start with sort of. The, the, the foundational site collections and document libraries that that's um, that's where the, this whole journey starts and the joke previously about content types content types is just as important today as it was 2007 when it was released 
Yeah, you know, some of the a, a bit contrarian here. I don't think I don't think an organization should be dictating necessarily this is the place. I, I, I like I tend to go along with, you know, you have a collection of humans who are producing valuable information. What's the best way to let those humans do their job? And then we'll come and we'll find their information. And that's that's part of the, the first part of Cortex is the search index. Right. It, it's, Cortex is going to do AI on top of what it finds. And so let Let's just make sure that when these humans generate information, it's stored someplace that we can find it with search and then it'll eventually show up in a topic card and then and off we go. I mean, I know that's that's the dream of what Cortex will bring to the table, but I I, I, it, it, I try to push back and saying this is the way that you have to do your information. I think it's better to enable the, the humans to do their job and then we'll we'll come in and gather their stuff up later. The thing the thing I'm waiting, waiting for some news on is. I'm quite excited to, to to see what they what they do in in terms of combining SharePoint spaces with Project Cortex. You know, we've got this we've got this uh, topic area that we've seen on these demonstrations around. Um, you know, uh, it mined a bunch of topics and it now has this like, topic centric view. That for me is a perfect candidate to turn into an augmented reality experience where we can bring in that kind of SharePoint Spaces capability. And I'm, you know, obviously they're two two different technologies we've seen previewed and shown publicly for for a couple of years now. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I I kind of look forward to the day when someone puts those two together. So to, to round this um, podcast out, given the current climate. What might be your recommended route through to getting valuable content produced and maintained, um, which will, of course, positively impact business performance during a very tough period, um, but also help organizations to ready themselves for Cortex? What would you be advising next time you go out to consult Wes and Victor? Give me, give me your, your top three takeaways. Well, I think... Organizations should stop fretting over this term site collection. I think it's a content repository. Get over the fact it's called a site collection and that has a new meaning to what it used to have. It's like it's just a security boundary and content storage. It doesn't have any depth of hierarchy. It's in a a faux architecture that you create as a user experience. Let's move on. I think the idea of Less is more has been a strong theme that I've certainly promoted across the last 18 months with customers. You don't need everything and anything. You need what's needed. Um, and finally, you know, let's, let's, um, let's work our content harder. Let's put it in places that, that can assist the organization doing things smarter or, or um, help the innovation cycles. You know, Cortex is going to be great for connecting people to content, which has been the holy grail of the platform for a very long time. Lots of solutions have built concepts around tagging human beings. It's like Cortex is going to wipe their need for capability out straight away. It's just going to be in the box. So, um, you know, this this is this is kind of three core areas I think are going to really affect businesses going forward. So I would think, so before doing anything of this, we've been mentioning sort of uh, everything from site collections to information architectures. Uh, now, for, uh, But I think you need to have a strategy. You need to understand, yes, we bought into the Microsoft 365 platform. We we have everything from Teams to, to SharePoint and, and document management and those kind of things and Project Cortex will help us here. But you need to have a strategy. How are we going to, going to work with content? Uh, 
Will we bring all our content we have into the Microsoft 365 suite? Will it keep it external? You need something to start with. And I had a workshop this Monday actually with the client where we, the, uh, that, that is a big thing before they act, even do the next step, before they even do sort of the, the think about are we enabling Cortex or not and how a search will be. You need to have some kind of strategy. What kind of document information, et cetera, will you have in here and, and sort that out first? And at least it doesn't have to be 200 pages long, but you need to have some kind of a, the starting strategy where how will we use this information or these services? Well, I'd like to thank the panel very much for uh, their thoughts on content and some of the challenges that content creators uh, might be finding themselves uh, dealing with uh, at the current time, but uh, more generally as well. Um, Victor, Wes, tell us a little bit about the next two sessions and what you guys are going to be talking uh, talking us through. So um, we're going to think about information architecture because it's a, a term that is banded around and a bit like user experience Sometimes it means user interface design. Sometimes it means the experience of interaction with something. Information architecture can cover everything from the minute classification patterns for particular content right the way up to um, you know, how to approach content management and you know, information at the, at the corporate level or even an industry level. So we're going to explore information architecture. It's a big and deep and wide subject. Um, and then think about how some of those technologies uh, plug in and, and support that experience. We want to talk about content types. That is. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might talk about content types, uh, new taxonomy store. We might even we might even be allowed to talk about APIs, taxonomy APIs, first party, Microsoft Graph. You know, being able to call call it without some kind of middle tier. Um, so yeah, it should be. It should be a fairly um, meaty subject. I think um, there's lots of practitioners, as, as our previous guests um, show, you can have very different experiences and viewports on the same terminology and the same uh, approach to application of the technology. So information architecture is a big subject. Victor, do you remember what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to dig into the technology behind this as well. And, and, and hopefully, it all depends on when we do this, uh, when and how much Microsoft will actually reveal about Project Cortex. Uh, and as Wes alluded to, so there will come some new, there are some new APIs, but, we, but there are quite a few interesting pieces, or I would say the Project Cortex is sort of, for, for me, it's sort of an umbrella term for a lot of interesting services uh, that will benefit from from the sort of good information architecture, good content strategy as we have here. But there's a lot of moving pieces here that we will bring together. So the plan, I think, is for Wes to pick up on information architecture next session. And we're hoping that Victor's session is going to coincide with Microsoft's official release for Project Cortex, (laughs) which will mean that he can um, deep dive on some of the capabilities which he's had access to for for quite some time. Um, So fingers crossed the timings work out for that. And we we hope you've been enjoying the uh, content we've been sharing with you in and around uh, Project Cortex. Um, as we do uh, collectively really think this is going to be a a huge and uh, game-changing piece of kit. Uh, I'd like to thank the panel um, for their time and we look forward to um, talking again on the next podcast. Thanks all.
the New Habits podcast is produced by Add-in365. Thank you to Victor Villain for participating. Please leave a review in iTunes along with a five-star rating. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening.